I'm Sinead O'Moore, and you're listening to Every Mum the Podcast, supported by Water Wipes, the world's purest baby wipes. From fertility to birth, pandemic parenting to taking care of ourselves, here we talk to guests about their own unique experiences of parenting. The insane joy and anxious defeat, the love, the laughs, tears, and the moments we don't talk enough about. This season is supported by one of the most essential products for every mum. From that first nappy change to those messy weaning months, water wipes. Made here in Ireland, water wipes are purer than cotton wool and water and made with only two ingredients, 99.9% purified water and a drop of fruit extract, making them ideal to protect and gently cleanse sensitive newborn and even premature skin. As the number one wipe in Ireland, Together, we are committed to providing more support for parents with trusted products and this podcast. Sometimes we can look at a family and assume, just because they already have a baby, that they're not going through the pain of infertility, yet 25% of couples that undergo IVF treatment are part of this unexplained secondary infertility group. After three years of trying to conceive, Ivan shares what it took to get here about the monthly cycles of hope and despair, the side effects of Clomid, and why she was so hesitant to try IVF, the treatment that in the end worked. This episode is a huge step forward for how we talk about fertility, how as women we need to share our stories so that we can learn about where and how to seek the right help, and to dispel the myth that behind every baby announcement there was an easy conception, because for many of us, there's a tougher story of trying to conceive. Ivan, thank you so much for joining me this morning on Every Mom the Podcast uh, to share your experience of creating baby number three. Uh, you are due in January and it's just, you shared your story on, on Instagram and it caught the attention, I think, of so many women. I think you'll say that yourself in terms of like the amount of responses you got when you started to share your fertility journey to number three. And I'm so grateful that you did and I'd love to talk more about it here today. Well, I'm delighted um, that you asked me on, Sinead, because like, I think, especially when women are, you know, I'm 39. So for me, being open and honest about how we managed to conceive towards the end of my 30s, I spent so long looking at baby announcements going, how did they get pregnant? Like, how, what am I doing wrong? Questioning myself constantly. And actually, one of the main reasons I wanted to be open was because I didn't actually want people to look at me and go, how did she get pregnant? Like, she's 39. Like, how did she do it? Because um, it wasn't easy. So, like, that's the reality for a lot of people. Um, it's not, it definitely doesn't happen overnight. And it definitely doesn't, you know, it's not guaranteed just because you have a couple of kids. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge as well, like, I feel for women and families and partners and couples who struggle. Um, and I feel equally for the people who maybe have a baby, but you know, feel, don't feel finished. You know, their family doesn't feel complete or their family doesn't feel like, um, yeah, they, they don't feel like they're finished. And sometimes we don't actually acknowledge how difficult it is for those people. Um, you know, it's not just the people who are trying to conceive baby number one. Sometimes it's the couples who are, it's even worse for the couples trying to conceive baby number two, because you fall into this false sense of security. Oh, well, it happened once it'll happen again. It's not really the case a lot of the time. 
Why do you think there's still so much silence around it? And I don't even say secrecy. I don't think it's secrecy anymore, but I do think it's still, there's still a silence around fertility challenges and the process to making a baby. And it's, it's all about the announcement, but never about how they got there. I know. I, I can understand the silence. I think it's actually, I mean, everybody is different. I'm an oversharer. I think I just, I like everything out in the open. I hate secrets. I hate things under the carpet. Um, I hate that as a, as a solution to anything, but some people are very private and I think the silence is, if there's nothing wrong with it, I think it's actually protection measure. I think people are protecting themselves from feeling too much pain. It's really hard, like going through uh, loss which I've been through as well or infertility or like envy like you go through stages of god when is it going to be my turn everybody knows that well a lot of women know that feeling and um, whether they have a child now or five children now or no children yet everybody knows what that feels like and I think the silence is probably some people's way of dealing with that pain so I completely respect silence and I think some people just need to go through it completely um in their own little bubble but i still think it helps to hear other stories even if you want to keep your own story to yourself i do think that people um find comfort in hearing how other people are getting on i remember the deep anxiety when i was trying to conceive my second and as each month passed it would get bigger and bigger yet everything you were reading and consuming is like don't stress be relaxed don't get anxious and it's like it doesn't work that way. And it almost became this like a mind game. Like it, was, it was a mental thing that took over as opposed to physical. Yeah, I can totally remember that as well. Because like we, we would have struggled on number two as well. Like this wasn't just an overnight struggle with number three. Um, I, we had Shamie in 2012. And like that, he was a surprise baby. Um, like the best surprise in the world. And then um, I actually had a miscarriage a couple of years later. Um, now we'd been trying for, you know, maybe six months at that point. And then we had a miscarriage and then another 10 months passed. It's like nothing was happening. Um, so, you know, I can remember the first time I felt that battle in my head of um, think positively and everything will be fine. And you're, you're really trying not to think negatively, even though you feel desperate and you feel desperate is a really good word because you're at the mercy of whatever you're reading on the internet you're at the mercy of you know the next craze in fertility treatment or you know something that first of all something you can afford without going to like medical centers because obviously these these things all cost money um and you know i think the mental battle is definitely the hardest one and i've done i've done ivf i've done like a lot of clomid oh my god it's evil most evil drug out there um and definitely physically like i have been very sick when i'm pregnant and ivf obviously is no picnic physically but mental battle is so much worse so much harder mm. so much harder um and i think that's why people appreciate stories because if they're going through exactly what you've been through they can relate and they can see okay i think they can take strength from it as well when did you decide that it was that yes, you could have, you know, you were, you were thinking about that mental battle, but it was now time to bring in an army yeah. that could help with the physical battle. Yeah. Very early on, actually, in this third kind of journey. <laughs> um, so when we started trying, let's say for number three, I was 36. And at that point, I knew that I had struggled 
on number two. So I didn't spend too much time hanging around. Um, I went back to a clinic for um, to go on Clomid. And I assumed because it worked after two months previously that it would just work relatively quickly. And I spent a year on between Clomid and Formara, you know, scans every couple of weeks checking the follicles like you become so obsessed and every time it fails you're like oh next month it'll be you know we'll do something a little bit different and and they're designed to trigger the ovulation basically they're designed to grow the follicles and then you take a trigger injection as well you do that yourself um so you're going in you're going in every couple of weeks for scans so that they can see how how many follicles you have how big they are whether or not they're ready to ovulate and as soon as they decide they're ready to ovulate they give you a trigger injection well you take it they give it to you physically and you take it at a certain time. Um, and I did, I did that for a year and it nearly broke me. Um, I was so low and desperate and, uh, upset, like just really upset because again, I was going through this like completely silently, um, that I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I have to stop. So I stopped all that medication and I started looking at um, alternative, not alternative medicine, but ways that I could maybe help my body mm-hmm. click back into knowing what to do. Um, and at that point I was, I hadn't even, IVF hadn't entered my head because I didn't think I'd need it. I didn't think I'd be a candidate. Um, I honestly thought if I went to an IVF clinic, they'd be like, you're fine. Like, you, you know, you've conceived twice so you're fine um so I didn't even think about it but I went down another road which was acupuncture and homeopathy and just kind of more reminded myself like I was really active in the gym I stopped lifting heavy weights I stopped doing anything kind of too rigorous which I love like I, I don't like yoga and walking like I like to be really active you know like I was doing crossfit and uh I gave it up because I was like, right, okay, well, maybe my body's not able to ovulate and lift these heavy weights at the same time. So I gave it up. So yeah, I, and I did my diet. I cleaned up my diet. Uh, okay, I mean, at one point I gave up sugar because I did these food allergy testing, which basically told me sugar was poison <laughs> to my particular body. Um, like I did all these things and sacrificed basically <laughs> my contentness with my life. You know, I had to give up like the gym that I loved. Um, I did other things. Like I started jogging and stuff. I just hate jogging. Like I don't enjoy it. Um, so I did a year and a bit of that kind of living, trying to live healthily. And then it's just nothing was happening. So at that point, I think I realized Gonna have to go in and bring the, the big guns. Were and at you, that point, I was older you, again, obviously. Were you ever though feeling like, okay, it's just not meant to be? I didn't let myself. Like my husband was, you know, starting to come to that realization. He was starting to say, you know, you might have to get your head around. It, you know, it mightn't be for us. It mightn't. It mightn't happen. I mean, hopefully it will, but it mightn't happen. Um, but for the most part, we were like, oh, well, you know, it's fine. You know, we're still in our thirties. It'll be fine. We'll get there in the end. Um, and it was, remember it was three years of wondering whether it'll happen. And that is torture in itself in your head <laughs> because you, you are imagining as a, as a mother, you know what it's like to have a newborn and you're imagining your kids having a sibling and you're imagining like you're even imagining bedrooms. 
like you're imagining your house and where they'd sleep and you're like you're thinking of names you know and the time like I remember the time that we had a miscarriage I'd already started thinking about names and things and it's just really hard then when you know you have to come to terms with the fact that it mightn't be um I never really let myself go there because I just wasn't ready to go there and I think that's why in the end I went gung-ho into IVF because like I did a total 360 like I was I used to think I'm not going to do IVF because that's tempting fate or something. I don't know. I just used to think I'm interrupting life's plan for me or I don't know. I I just, I didn't, I didn't ever think I would go there. And then I threw myself wholeheartedly into it in the end. Um, And it was, I was quite impatient actually, because by the time I made the phone call, I made the phone call to the clinic. I went to Marion Fertility. They were brilliant. Um, we rang them in September, October. We got our tests. Now we'd had tests done already and all our tests, by the way, were totally fine. Our, my infertility was virtually unexplained. So we had all our testing done and then eventually we got in with, a, with Mary Wingfield um, for a consultancy. And then it was April before we did IVF. So, it's a, you know, it was quite a long wait. Um, having already waited at that point, two and a half years, we ended up waiting another half a year to actually do the IVF. And then obviously we know we're very lucky the first round worked because very often, the start of the IVF process is the start of another wait. Mm. It doesn't always work. Um, I think probably because all of our tests came back fine, um, we were probably good candidates for it to work the first time because it was just something not clicking. There was all this animosity. Oh, maybe you've blocked you, maybe you don't. But like, I could never get a definitive answer on that, even though I had high cozy and I had like, you know, I had all the tests. So I just think fertility and infertility is there's so much waiting. Mm. and it's how you deal with the waiting is is the key and if you can deal with it like we were actually quite lucky we never really it's quite stressful for couples but we actually never really felt that stress on our relationship I mean um Brian is very grounded and kind of kept me grounded never really let me get completely you know like a wailing banshee of of sadness I it just never he never let me go down that road um so thankfully that wasn't a stressor but I just found I had awful guilt then the time that I stopped the clomid so about a year or whatever a year and a half into the process I actually felt really guilty that I had taken my eye off the ball with my other kids I was like have I just ignored them growing up in the last year and I felt really bad about that totally all consuming Mm. And it's all consuming in your own head because, you know, as you know, partners, it's your body and they, they, you know, they try and they help and they talk to you, but they don't know really that you're looking at every, you're feeling every single twinge every single month going, did I just ovulate? It's torture. Um, and it is all consuming. And I did have awful guilt at that point going, have I just, have I just not watched, you know, Peggy go from three to four or Shamie go from six to seven or whatever it was. So that was when I just took a, took a step back and did all of the other stuff. And then I was, I was starting to, I started to get really mindful of just how lucky I was. And I kept that in my head as well, which did help, but I still wanted another baby. Like I, I, I know I'm lucky. I still know I'm really lucky. And I knew, I knew I was lucky back then as well, but it was just, that's what I mean about the mental struggle being so much worse than the physical. Like it's, it's an absolute head melt. And living in two week cycles of, Totally. Okay, so it didn't work, but that's okay. We'll grieve now, and you're sad about that, and then you wait a week, and then you're in this hope phase, and then you're in yeah. the 
countdown phase of like, okay, well, ovulation is in exactly three days. And then it's like, oh, I must be pregnant because, you know, my boobs are sore. Yeah. They're sore every month. And and you, you, as you said, like you literally, you're like, my hair looks a little limp today. Must Google. Is that a symptom? Do you know, it's, it's all consuming. And yet you have life all around you that you can be present in and find enough from, you know, as you said, you're like, you're looking at your other children going, am I, am I living this with them? Mm-hmm. Or am I now feeling guilty because this doesn't feel like it completes me? Oh, I know. It's so bad. I remember when I started with my homeopath, I explained, or I tried to describe that feeling of the cycle of hope and despair mm-hmm. every month, hope and despair. And it just kept going around and around. And it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. And like you say, I did, and I do have like a very full life outside of what, what I was going through with infertility. I love my job. I was traveling the world. I, um, you know, I have a strong marriage. I have a, I have a lovely family. My kids are great. They're really healthy. Everything's fine. Um, I had two sisters who got married in that time. And, you know, we had great memories made. And even one of them, like I was... I was bridesmaid for one of my sisters and I didn't buy my, I didn't go and get a bridesmaid outfit until the month before. Cause I was like, oh, I might be pregnant. And I was like, that was in, this is how naive I was. She got married in 2019, mm. 2021 now. And I was trying for a, over a year by the time she got married. So like, you're always, your head is always going 90 and you're always thinking nine months ahead. Every time you ovulate, you're like Ooh, nine months time, where will I be? it's and I just feel so naive now looking back on all that hope I felt do you know what I mean I mean obviously I'm lucky now you can't switch that off it's it's really hard to be the person no matter what kind of a relationship you're in or whether you're like in a same-sex couple or whether you're a single person you know using a donor it's still you it feels like all of it is on your shoulders and it's actually really hard to balance everything in your life between, you know, you've got this whole section of your life completely consumed with infertility, but you might be like in a really important um, job or you might have some like distant family stuff going on or you might have like, and it's actually really hard to switch, like to calm down the way everyone says, oh, just relax and it'll happen. Mm. Um, oh, I bet you you'll go on a holiday now and you come back pregnant or it's, and people don't mean like people don't have, there's no malice in the things people say. I just don't think they realize how hurtful it is because no, eating chickpeas is actually not going to make a difference. Mm. Like if I am infertile, chickpeas and broccoli and a walk on the beach are not going to fix my fallopian tubes. Like, do you know what I mean? And that's why if you have been trying for more than a year and a half or more than a year or even more than whatever, eight months, depending on what age you are, those comments are actually quite hurtful. Um, and they're I don't so flippant. Think they're so flippant. Mm. And obviously people don't know that you've gone through so much in your head and in your mind and in your soul. So they don't know they're being flippant. But it's, it's because they come across flippant to you, they're actually they can be quite hurtful. Do you know what I mean? It minimizes what's actually happening and it makes it, it makes it sound simple. Yeah. And there's always an, ah, well, at least there's always an, at least this, or at least that, at least you have the other two. Mm. 
And of course I know that, like, I don't need to be told how lucky I am that I have two kids. Um, or, it's, you know, and you hear it all the time when people have a miscarriage. How far along were you when you had the miscarriage? Yeah, Who cares? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You lost a baby. Mm. Oh, well, at least you weren't too far gone. It's like, what? No. Oh, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. That's not a comfort. I don't know how people think that's a comfort. Um, so maybe that's just a product of the fact that we don't talk about stuff maybe that's why people people don't know enough about what other people are going through like not everyone goes through infertility um and i don't think you can fully understand it until you do um and maybe it's because we don't talk enough that people feel like those things are comfort those things are a comfort because they're not a comfort at all i think sometimes people feel like they don't have a right to be upset with secondary infertility sometimes I think maybe there's a taboo around it because you obviously your heart goes out to people who are still trying to conceive their first child so I think if you have a baby I think you're probably more silent about that secondary infertility because you feel like I shouldn't feel I shouldn't feel unlucky I'm not allowed to feel unlucky mm. and I think that's why less people talk about it at that point um and I don't know don't really know how kind of society views it either you know do they do they look at people like me and go oh, she's giving out about I don't know and then it's like well if you are already a parent and you're experiencing secondary infertility it's more of a but but I already made a child what mm. how is this now happening why is this now happening why has my body stopped working but it did work before okay, well, we'll just stop trying and this is our family complete. And arriving at that conclusion, but you don't necessarily hear of why they've arrived at that conclusion. You just feel like, oh, that family stopped at one or stopped at two or stopped at three. Mm. But yet there's the, all of these silent battles that no doubt are going on. And probably a lot of women feeling like they're alone in it. Yeah. I, I mean, that worries me. I, I, would, I would like to think that everyone has a sister or a friend that they can talk to. Like I had a circle of probably four people that I would just rant to the whole way through the last three years. <laughs> like, um, and again, that's just because I didn't want it to be under the, you know, and my mom knew and stuff. I find it easier when it's out there. I find it easier to deal with things when I can talk about them. I'm a total talker. Um, but then other people are the complete opposite and we're going through similar things um, and wouldn't say even if they knew it was a safe space to say to me. Um, so I think the most, I think, I mean, the most important thing I would say to anybody is just try and find somebody that you can, like, even if it's just a rant at, and I think it needs to be someone else other than your partner, if you have a partner, um, because I think that's when you get into trouble with it consuming your entire relationship. It needs to not consume your entire relationship. Obviously you need to talk to people, your partner about things, but I think being able to rant and just say, this is not fair. And I think men in particular are always trying, trying to fix, and there's no fix. Like you just need to be able to rant. <laughs> like there's no point, don't try and fix me. I just need to go on a rant here and you just need to listen and not try and fix it. <laughs> um, I think, you know, sisters and girlfriends are better at that, I think. This podcast is just one way that every mum can support you. 
Another amazing way is with our free gift bag, packed full of essentials for you and baby, including free samples of water wipes, the number one wipe against nappy rash. To receive yours, just register now on everymum.ie. There's a free gift bag there waiting for every mum. Describe the feeling once you started IVF. Was there a certain relief that at least you were on a process now? Yeah, totally. Like I completely relaxed once we got the date. Once we got our consultation in the diary, like we rang in October, I think it was September, October last year, we rang up and we got a consultation for December. And I just totally relaxed. And then everyone, of course, like, oh, I bet you now you get pregnant because you're relaxed. I didn't. Um, but I was totally relaxed. I was like, this is now we have a plan of action. Mm-hmm. And this is science. So it's not just me hoping, hoping. again. It's not mm-hmm. just pure hope. Mm-hmm. It's actual science. And I totally relaxed. Um, and I remember the day we had the consultation with Mary Wingfield. She was lovely. And we were really excited because it felt like a really positive conversation. Because like I said, our tests were normal. Um, and at that point, we knew all of our tests were normal. And she was able to tell us that we were good candidates for it to work first time. And that was just a comfort then while we waited for the dates. And, you know, we had another four month wait to actually get in and start our meds and stuff. Um, So I was in a really positive place when I started IVF, even though I'd been through the mill, you know, emotionally for the previous two and a half years. I got really excited and positive again when I started out that journey. Um, how did it feel different though because you, you described how Clomed was such a negative experience on you like were you afraid that going through yeah. IVF would bring those symptoms and feelings back I was I was actually because I assumed if Clomed was bad the IVF meds must be worse <laughs> just kind yeah. of assumed that and it was the exact opposite I didn't feel any different on the IVF meds I didn't feel hormonal I didn't feel emotional I didn't feel hot-headed, short-tempered, which all of, I was, I was all of those things on Clomid. Um, and I was, bearing in mind, on Clomid for a year. I must have been a nightmare. Uh, I didn't feel any of those things. Um, and I didn't mind the injections. You know, the first one I got Brian to do it and then I was like, oh no, I actually need to control this myself. I need to do this myself. <laughs> Total control freak. So I just did them myself from then on. Set alarms, you know, made sure if I was going to get home late for work that I wouldn't, you know, I'd made sure that I'd do them at the same time. So if I had in those, whatever, in those two weeks, I was on a short protocol. So I think I only had nine or 10 days of stims, which is, I was really lucky. And I looked at my work diary and I was like, right, well, I'm working until eight o'clock that night. So I'm not going to do any of my meds until half eight or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly what time. Um, and I found it fine. I, I really found it fine. I made a few mistakes with the needles. Like I broke a few and spilled the meds and God, the panic, like absolute panic. Cause I thought I'm going to run out of them now. I'm not going to have enough. But the clinic were amazing. It was basically live chat. Like I was able to just literally live chat straight away and be like, what am I going to do here? Open another one. Been the last one. Don't worry. We'll get you more. Not an, not an issue. Um, they were just so good the whole way through. So comforting. Um, and I was actually very, very nervous about the embryo transfer. That was the big thing I was nervous about because um, I was told it was similar to high cozy. And I had a very traumatic high cozy um, by a male um doctor in a general hospital and he didn't know what he was doing um and something that should have taken three minutes he must have been rooting for like 30 minutes he couldn't find my cervix and and that was before he even put in the dye like it was torture I was crying like I was on the table crying and this is pre-covid but I had decided not to bring Brian um it was in James's hospital so I just walked down the road like we live near it um and I was like why didn't I bring him like I would have been allowed to have him there and I didn't bring him and I was traumatized 
it was awful. Um, but ex- explain. But, how, but they did. How but they did. did. You find yourself in that position, though. You know that. Or while you were in that position, did you feel like you could advocate for yourself? Did you feel like you could say, like, hang on here, this isn't working, please stop? No, I didn't because I felt like he needs to do what he's doing because we need to find out if my tubes are blocked. Yeah. So I was like, we need, I need, I just need to cop, I just need to cop the fuck on. Stop crying, get through this. But like, when I explained this to the fertility clinic, yeah. to, to Marion Fertility, they were like, they were horrified. They were like, that shouldn't have taken that long. That's really, that's an awful experience that you had. Um, and because it was so bad, I knew the embryo transfer was a very similar procedure. Yeah. So actually they brought me in a few weeks before I started my protocol to do a trial transfer so that they could put my mind at ease. In other words, this is not as bad as, as that. And this is what it's going to feel like. There was no charge. There was nothing said. Just come in. And there was a lovely midwife, Helen, or nurse, Helen, in there. And she was an angel. And she, she performed it. And when it was over, she was like, now that's what the high cozy should have felt like. Yeah. Like, oh my God. It was literally about a minute and a half. Oh, stop. So for that reason, I wasn't as nervous, but I still couldn't have Brian there because of COVID. So for the egg collection, which you're knocked out for and you wake up on your own, he wasn't there. You, so you wake up not knowing if you had how many eggs you had or how many, or if you had any eggs or if they were any kind of, you know, decent size or whatever. And you're on your own. You're a bit delusional. You're a bit kind of, all, you know, when you come out of a... You know, whatever sedation or whatever, you're a bit like all over the place. So he wasn't there, and they were lovely. The nurses were so they took such great care of us. But I was still on my own waking up, and I was on my own for the embryo transfer, and that's not normal. Like that was because of COVID. Yeah. Um. So looking back, it was kind of a tricky enough little road, but Mary and fertility just made it. I'd say as comfortable as it, and as as stress-free as it could possibly be right down to the meds and stuff you know right down to like I had an issue with my pharmacist gave me the wrong meds and blamed me like shouted at me on the phone made me cry Stop. and she said like she said something it was a female pharmacist and she was like okay no need to get all hot and bothered or something oh, and I was like you got my meds wrong I need this medicine for tonight and now I said I'm not hot and bothered I'm yeah. infertile and you're being really mean yeah <laughs> um she was awful but the um but also like you know there's a huge cost element mm. to what you're going through oh yeah and she was basically saying you know you have to pay for this and I'm like well you gave me the wrong one so actually no it's your mistake I'm not paying extra for this because you should have put it given it to me and would have been on the DBS and all of that but, but the clinic that, stepped in and basically rang her. I'm like, leave her alone. Yeah. Give her these drugs. Don't charge her for them. It was your yeah. mistake. Leave her alone. So the clinic were like huge advocates for me. They were unbelievable. But mistakes like that, let's just say it did result in the, that cycle not working. And you can't afford another. You mm. know? Oh, and I couldn't afford another, to be honest. But, so it's so incredibly important to work yeah. with a group yeah. that is just so careful about you and looking after your body looking after your mental health looking after making you feel as secure as possible because you only get a certain amount of chances yeah yeah and we ended up having just one um we had one frozen embryo so we had one embryo transferred and it was like a top grade embryo or whatever um and then we had like a second grade embryo in the freezer, we'll say. So while I, I couldn't afford to do another round, we would have 
a frozen embryo that we could transfer mm. as a frozen transfer. But, and that's why I was talking earlier about the mental, the mental challenge. There are 11 days between embryo transfer and uh, blood test. And those 11 days were the hardest 11 days in the last three years <laughs> because it's black or white. It either worked or it didn't. And it's like, top level science not working is what you're is what you're you know faced possibly with also knowing that there's only one more chance in your life that's the way i was looking at it it's this transfer and it's the frozen embryo and then that is it i think that's it like we it's all our savings are gone yeah absolutely that was it and that's why those 11 days were torture because i knew i had the top grade embryo and I knew the one in the freezer wasn't as good a quality. So, so I was kind of in my head, it's like, if this doesn't work, then yeah. how is what the other chance? one going to work? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's head melt. It's how head did melt. you manage yourself through those 11 days or, or did you? I, I kept working. Some people take the time off. I was actually fine. Some people can't really walk very well after egg collection. I didn't feel anything. I was fine. It was a bit woozy on that day and you're told to put the feet up and I did. But like after that... I worked away. Um, I mean, I have two kids, so it was mm. very easy You're to distract. Busy. I was busy. I was busy. I was distracted. I was only really overthinking everything at nighttime. Mm. You know, when you're going to bed and you're on your phone, you're Googling and you're on, you're on Instagram and you're looking at fucking gender reveals. <laughs> uh, so I, no, I was, I was pretty well able to distract myself, but it was always on my mind, like 24 hours a day, it was on my mind, but I just had things to do while it was on my mind. Um, so I wouldn't recommend you take the week off. I wouldn't recommend anyone take those 11 days off is torture. Um, I was in work when I got the call as well. I was just about to ask as like when the phone rang, yeah. how did you feel? You go in at half eight for a blood test in the morning and then I had to go to work. I had a meeting at 10 and I knew they told me they'd ring at 1.30 PM on the nose. So I went out to my car at 25 past one. Oh God! Phone rat. I know. I know. I feel own. it. I feel it already. I was Just, shaking. I was yeah. absolutely shaking. Um, went down, sat in my car. Phone rang at half one in the nose, and I'm looking at Mary Infertility coming up on my phone, going, "Oh my God! I have to answer this, and I have to take this news on my own." And I can't describe how fast my heart was going. I can't describe it. Like it was not a comfortable, not a comfortable situation. Mm. Um, took the call and then they had to do the whole GDPR. Like, oh God, and you're like, <laughs> am I or am I die? Yes or no? I know, they had to, this is Ivan, hello, and your date of birth. And I'm ringing with the results of your pregnancy test from this morning. Just want to confirm you had an embryo transfer on the next day. And I'm kind of going, oh my God, please just get to it. And her voice was so kind of monotone that I let my heart sink. Mm. I, I did, because I was like, she wouldn't be this kind of... Mm-hmm downbeat if, if she was going just about to deliver good news so she, I, I let my heart sink because I was like okay, in protecting myself like mm. okay just let it sink now so that it doesn't hurt as much when she comes out and says it and then she said congratulations and I just mm. started bawling growing I didn't even hear what she said next she said congratulations and she must have said you're pregnant but, but I, I don't remember I just started crying like I just couldn't stop crying and it was just like three years of emotion and hope and despair just like falling out of me like it was just so weird it was just an out-of-body experience it was so weird and then all I could say was like oh my god thank you so much and what and then she started explaining what I needed to do next and like I had to turn her back <laughs> <'cause it's> just, <laughs> she's like you need to 
get progesterone and take that and oh. I off like okay come in for a scan in next week or something I don't know like it was just it's like text me, text me. just ring me later I need to go and cry and ring my husband oh my god I was bawling crying and then I rang oh. Ryan and uh I actually facetimed him hmm. and he didn't get to the phone on time because I he, he was <laughs> he was working but he saw that it was a FaceTime and he said to me after, he was like, you FaceTime me so I knew it was good news. If you'd have rang me, yeah. I wouldn't have known. But because you FaceTime me, I knew you wanted yeah. to talk to me properly, like to, me, to your face. Um, so he rang me straight back, like literally 10 seconds later, he rang me straight back and I told him I was still crying. <laughs> then I rang my mom and I was still crying. Um, yeah, but it was very strange like that now again, being on your own, getting that, getting that news. Yeah. Very, now I didn't, like it was just, I happened to be in work, you know, that wasn't necessarily covid related that was just because i was in work of course. but i just felt like i did a lot of it on my own like yeah. you know all of the appointments were on my own all of the scans like that were on my own all of the collection embryo transfer it's all on my own like and when i found it out i was on my own which i know is kind of a lot of times normal because you do a pregnancy test you're, usually you're on your own you do a pregnancy <laughs> test as well but like i just found it all very overwhelming that I was on my own for all of that stuff, that important stuff. And like this need to, like, to ring my mom or ring Brian or whatever. Um, but yeah, that phone call was like... I think it's because like at a very human level, it is our bodies doing it on their own. Yeah. I think you that's know, why it's hard. You, yeah. You, it's like we're doing enough of this on our own because our bodies are actually the ones either making a baby or not making a baby. Yeah. And in your head, you're blaming your body. It's your fault. Totally. It's, it's totally. what's going on for you. As you said, it's, oh, you were eating sugar. Oh, the poison that you were consuming. You were weight, lifting weights that meant that your body couldn't ovulate. Like yeah. all of the things that you're telling yourself that it's your body, your body. Oh, I told myself all of those, all of those things. Oh, all um, of those things. Yeah. And then, so it's like all of these ancillary moments to have the, the company and the companionship and the support stripped away again. Yeah. Like another layer of like, Oh my God, it's all on me. Mm. Yeah. And that's why I feel so sad for women in the last two years during COVID who've had really bad news in hospital, you know, cause they've been on their own. Um, and I don't know. It's, again it's kind of you nearly have guilt then you know that you feel so happy that it's you know you're, you have good news finally mm-hmm. um i can't imagine whatever about getting a great phone call like that on your own i can't imagine going for a scan and getting the worst news possible and being on your own mm-hmm. um there's not really any excuse for it anymore like i don't think anybody like i understand that in the very height of covid like it was desperately dangerous to you know, for anybody that ne- other than who needed to be there to be there, but like, it's not the case. It hasn't been that way for about a year now. And I just don't think there's any excuse for women to suffer on their own like that. It's just so bad. I've been there. It's, it's something, it's awful. But for the most part, pre-COVID, you have someone with you. And if they're not at the scan, they're there within five minutes because they yeah. drive like the hounds of hell to get up to you. Um, so I don't think there's any excuse for that anymore. Even now, still, I was in yesterday for a checkup with the consultant, and there were no partners in the waiting room. Like that's just the way it is now. And that's fine, to be honest. Like, what are they going to do anyway? You know, at those appointments, it's a little bit different once you get past your, um, like I'm 25 weeks now, so 
you know, and I can feel baby moving. So it's not, you know, it's not as stressful sitting in that waiting room, but sitting, excuse me, sitting in the waiting room for your 20 week scan. I was terrified, but Brian was there. So I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And then because of my age, the first thing they say before they even open the scanner is like, you know, these are the risks and they go through all the bad things that can happen. And you're just like, God, just do the scan. Yeah. Just do the scan. Um, and they're doing that to protect you because they don't want to, they don't want you to think that they've seen something when they tell you about extra testings that yes. you can do. So they tell you about all these options because I'm 39. They tell you about all the other options for extra testing. Now I was never going to do extra testing because I wouldn't have changed the course of anything I would do in my pregnancy. So I didn't think there was any point into getting extra testing, but she was like, I'm telling you this now so that you don't think I see something on the scan and then tell you. But I was just like, scan me, just get it over with. Tell me. Yeah. So, and that was actually lovely for Brian, because if you think about it, it was very hard for him to actually even imagine a baby Mm. because he hadn't been to any, you know, he hadn't been to the 12 week scan and he hadn't obviously felt anything. So the 20 week was it was after that that he started thinking about names and he started engaging in, Oh, the future is three, you know, three kids. Like it did. I think until then it kind of didn't really dawn on him Mm. because he hadn't been anywhere with me. So it's got a nice relief as well. Yeah. I think my, my husband missed all the scans and I, and I actually, I shared a couple of days ago, um, a video of, of my older daughter meeting the baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's in it. And I got loads of messages of like, oh, my God, your husband's face. And then I realized he was kind of meeting the baby. Yeah. You know, when oh we brought gosh. the baby home. Yeah, because he hadn't been in the hospital. He, he, what, like, he, he was there for the birth. Um, but he came the next day to just bring us home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. The next day. Yeah. No, I was wow. like, get me out of here. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh God, that wasn't, I, I was so f- kind of focused on the girls, the girls yeah, meeting, meeting each other. Yeah. And yes, he was, the, he was at the birth and he held her and everything like that. But it was actually really important to get home. Yeah. To have it I real. Thought of that. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Mm. I hadn't thought about it. It was a year ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I know. We're, I think we're still only, figuring out that level of exclusion and what that did yeah you know that real like you're not you're not part of this yet you're not allowed feel like a father yet you're not allowed bring your head there yet it's it's damaging it's hard there's still I think a lot of a lot of answers to questions as to why it has taken so long so long as yeah and like you have a baby you had a baby during COVID so you now have a baby who is not as used to other people as your maybe your other baby was at this age. You have a baby who um, doesn't know as many people, doesn't have as big a circle, isn't as socialized. You know, there's loads of long-term tricky situations that are not solved yet. But I, I just wanted to ask you, because around that, like, you know, the knock-on effects of things, once you got that phone call and once you knew that you were pregnant, did that anxiety and worry linger more because of the process that you'd taken? No. And I think it's because I suffer from hyperemesis. So within a week I was vomiting. Mm. And I think that the anxiety 
lifted because I know from two previous pregnancies, if I'm really sick, my baby is thriving. And I, I mean, I was so sick. I was so sick, but I took such comfort in it at the same time and gratitude. Um, because I knew then I didn't have to worry as much. Um, yeah, it's hard to describe. I felt all along that I just needed to get to the point of being pregnant. And then I, I felt like my body would knew what to do, would know what to do because it's done it before. And I also had faith in science that, you know, they created a top class embryo for me. Um, so I just had a feeling that if I could just get to the point of implantation, I just feel, I feel like my body didn't know, forgot how to implant. That's what I feel like was happening. And that's why the diet thing, that's why they were saying to me, even doctors were saying, oh yeah, sometimes when you're, when you're, when you're eating foods, you're not meant to be, that you can't tolerate, your body can't implant because it's too, too much inflammation. That's what I was being told. Um, so I just thought if I can just get to a positive pregnancy test, that means it's implanted. And then I just felt like my body would take over. And sure enough, a week later I was vomiting. So the hormones just like were, were, were literally doubling every day. And I knew I just took a lot of comfort in being so sick, which I know sounds awful because high premises is no joke. It's awful. But for me, because I knew I'd been through it before, it was actually a comfort, mm. you know? So the anxiety lifted very quickly. And knowing what you know now about the process of IVF, do you feel like you would have like... I should have done it years ago. Would you have told yourself that? Mm, I should have done it. I should have just done it years ago. I should have done it probably six months after Clomid didn't work. I should have just moved on. Instead, I did a year of Clomid. I was traumatized by Clomid, took a year off meds and then started looking into the other stuff. And by the time between starting trying to get pregnant and doing IVF, it was three full years, almost to the day. So I, 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 and I suppose the reason I didn't ever do it is because I was a little bit afraid of it, you know, um, I was afraid of the meds. I was afraid of it not working. I was afraid of it being the last chance saloon, Mm -hmm. but I shouldn't have been afraid really, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So maybe we need to talk more about how, how it's not that bad as well. I don't know. Like in my experience, um, I didn't find it too harrowing. I got my head around the injections. I just got myself into a really good place um and I never let myself stop hoping as well I think that's really important because it's very easy to be just despairing because I you know you do you despair every month every single month I I cried every single month Mm. but not stopping hoping is it sounds kind of airy fairy but it's actually really important because then when you do get to the point of right this is this is my last chance to live at least you have hope left because like you very little else left only faith in other people you know what I mean (laughs) um but it's yeah it can it can the fear of the thing that's supposed to work officially not working yes that was that's that's why I didn't do it yeah because I knew that was it after if that didn't work I knew that was it so that was the fear it wasn't the fear of the process necessarily and it definitely wasn't stigma I was misquoted on that before it wasn't like I don't think there's anything lesser in doing IVF like I mean I don't know how anyone would think that but I I somehow somehow people took me up as having said that and they didn't say that I mean I'm the last person who thinks that I'm talking about it Mm. um it's Mm. you know I think I would have benefited from other people talking about it three Mm. years ago and talking about how it's okay so again that's why I wanted to talk about it but it was the fear of switching off the hope 
Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah. And having to clear out the attic. Like my baby stuff was all up there. Mm. You know, I never cleared it out. And I had, you know, when Brian started saying things like, oh, maybe you have to get your head around it. I started thinking, oh my God, I have to go up into that attic. I'm going to be a mess clearing that attic out. Do you know what I mean? Did not want to go there. So. I'm pretty sure our family is complete. And even the thoughts of doing that process is. Yeah. It's an era. Heartbreaking. End of an era. Like no matter when you do it, like. Heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm so glad that conversations like this are happening now. I feel like. We shouldn't, we shouldn't not know what the options are and we shouldn't not know the experiences that, that people have. We shouldn't also live in this naive world where you think, well, you just have sex and there's a baby. I, I feel like it's probably a hangover of our teenage years when it was thrown at us as though it was like a threat. Yeah. Um, like, we should know our bodies more. You know, we shouldn't have to arrive at a problem to then discover that you have a blocked tube. Yeah. You know, or that certain foods may cause inflammation, which prevents implementation, implantation. Yeah. You know, there's just, I just feel like there was a chapter missing when we were being taught so many useless things about us and our bodies and how we can care for ourselves more, advocate for ourselves more, make decisions earlier based on feeling like I have power over my body and my choices. And I kind of feel like in the absence of those chapters, all we can do right now is tell stories. You're so right. Yeah, you're so right. Um, and there was a lot of probably fear when we were like when we were teenagers, like, oh, don't go near the boys. You, you look at them and you're yeah. pregnant. And I think that's quite damaging, too, because it's really not that simple. <laughs> really not that simple. No, especially no. And look- we do need to know more. I don't think I realized until I stopped. I mean, I was told I stopped ovulating after I had a miscarriage and I had to like Google when do you ovulate? Like, I don't think I really knew the mechanics of everything properly. Um, and at that point, I was probably like 31 or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like how many periods, you know, how many cycles of ovulation had you done at that point in your life? And yet we still <laughs> don't know enough about it. Yeah. Crazy. Um, so I think it's just it's it releases fear. It releases that tension. It releases the feeling like you're not in control when you hear other people's stories and it inspires you to at least make a phone call, you know, talk to somebody that has expert medical information start the process earlier just know a bit more about it and not be so afraid of it because there are ways and means but what's most important is that you are supported by trusted doctors that know what they're doing and that can advocate on your behalf as 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 the clinic did for you when it came to the pharmacist as the experience that you had in james's like don't let people do anything to you when they don't know what they're doing yeah, because you are in a vulnerable place. You're in such a vulnerable place. Mm. Such a vulnerable place. So if you are feeling like you've reached a point where you're not ready to stop trying, but that naturally isn't happening quick enough or supporting you emotionally or mentally or physically, like take a step. All it is is one step. It might just be a phone call. Mm. You know, you don't have to start IVF tomorrow. Like it's just a yeah. phone call. 
just start a process where you feel like you're regaining a little bit of control and a little bit more information, a little bit more empowerment. Because often when you're waiting, as you said, when you're waiting on those natural cycles every month to occur and you're just waiting on hope, like it's hard. It's very, very hard. Sometimes science helps. And sometimes it's only a small bit of science actually can make the big difference. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me this morning and sharing that story. Honestly, you'll have done so good, so much good because we just need, we just need to know what other women are going through, what helped, what didn't and what you can do about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're so right. It's all power. Information is power. And I think knowing that you're part of some sort of a group out there is comforting. You know, you're not on your own. No matter if you think that this has never happened to anybody else, you're wrong. There's always somebody who's gone through the exact same as you. Um, and it's just about finding those stories and relating to them. And it's, it is a comfort, I think. And it's always once you say, oh, that happened to me, that somebody turns around and says, oh, me too. Yep, absolutely. Oh, me too. So don't be afraid to share your own one as well, as well as listening to others. Um, just women have got to start talking about more of this stuff. There is so much to be gained. I cannot wait to find out when baby arrives in January. Um, I can't wait, like just in having had a, an October baby, just that feeling of like winter descending. And <laughs> I know, I can't wait myself. I'm just going to cocoon. Yeah, the fire on and the curtains closed and get cozy and just nest. Yeah. And then spring will come and you can come back into the world. Yeah, that's the plan, hopefully. Thank you so much for joining us. Sinead, thanks a million. Thank you so much for listening and to Water Wipes, the world's purest baby wipes for their support. Proven to be purer than cotton wool and water, Water Wipes are made with just two ingredients. Our 100% biodegradable, plastic-free and compostable wipes. And the winners of seven National Parenting Product Awards 2021, including Best Baby Wipes. So you can do what's best for your baby's skin and help protect the planet. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, rate or leave a review, share this episode across social and get in touch with this week's guest, Ivan, at Ivan Sport on Instagram. Talk to you again next week.